He said, you did what? That was the response of Lee when his wife, Leslie, came home and informed him that she had become a Christian. No, we are not church people. We are not Christian people. Why would you go and do that? Lee was devastated because he had built his life a certain way, and it certainly was not the way of Jesus. And so when his wife came home and told him that she had decided to follow Jesus, he was frustrated, devastated, confused. He didn't know what he was going to do. But after weeks and weeks and weeks of her inviting and living her life as a Christian, finally Lee succumbed, and he went with her to church one day. And while they were in church, he realized that though he was a journalist who'd spent his career investigating cases as a legal journalist, he had never actually investigated the teachings of Jesus. And so he decided that he needed to take all of his skills as a journalist and apply them to the teachings that had changed his wife's life. Sarah was similar. She grew up in a family that was really hostile to Christians. As a child of science-focused parents and aspiring to be a scientist herself, she viewed Christians as weak, foolish, and unintelligent. She believed in the knowledge and the intelligence and the mind as a kid. Her favorite character was Spock from the original Star Trek series. And so so she left Western Canada where she grew up to move to Oregon to go to college. And while she was there, she began to realize that all of her intelligence and all of her science still didn't touch some basic questions. Like, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What happens after we die? And as a college student, she began to ask some hard questions, questions that she'd never asked before. Nabil grew up in a Pakistani family who'd immigrated to the United States. They were part of a peaceful Muslim sect. And Nabil's parents were extremely devoted both to their faith, but also to preparing their kids. And by age five, Nabil was fluent in three different languages, English, Arabic, and Urdu. He began to memorize large portions of the Quran, and his parents taught him not only what a good Muslim should believe, but prepared him to answer questions of the dominant faith in the country they called home now, America. And so when Nabil went to college at Old Dominion University, Nabil met another student named David. And for the very first time, Nabil met someone who studied their Bible as well as he studied the Quran. But Nabil wasn't scared. He wasn't intimidated. He said, I know the truth. I know the truth of what the Quran teaches. And he began to pepper David with questions. But what he found was that David was prepared and had lots of answers and had information that he'd never examined before. And so Nabil went on his own journey to ask hard questions and to do his homework. Today I want to ask you a question, and it's a rhetorical question, so please don't answer it out loud. But I want you to be honest. We try to make this time every Sunday morning for our church some of the most honest times in our week. And so I want to ask you a question. And the question is this. The resurrection— Is it real? What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead like Jake just prompted us to speak about? Or do you not? And if you would say, Scott, I I don't believe or maybe I'm not sure what I believe, then I want to ask you a follow-up question or a question or two. Why do you not believe it's real? Or why do you not know if it's real? 
And see, I believe the question, resurrection, is it real, is the most important question we could talk about today or talk about for all of eternity. I, I, I take some of that confidence and that question from this man, a man named Saul, who was convinced that the answer to the question, is the resurrection real? His answer for many years was no, never. In fact, he devoted himself to arresting and stopping the spread of those who believed that it was real. But ultimately, one day, while he was traveling from Jerusalem and Israel to Damascus and Syria, Saul had a literal encounter with Jesus that changed the trajectory of his life. And he went from the person who said, no, never, the resurrection is not real, to perhaps the greatest ambassador for the teaching of the resurrection. And here's what he said in one of his earliest writings. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. That's why the question, is the resurrection real, such a fundamental question. Because for the two billion plus people who are alive on planet earth today and who claim to be followers of Jesus, if the resurrection is not real, then the tower of our faith comes crashing down. If you ever played Jenga before, there's one piece in the Jenga that eventually one person gets stuck with and when you pull it down, the whole thing falls apart. That piece is the resurrection. So if you're a skeptic or a cynic, I would say go after the resurrection. That's the the piece that everything rises and falls on. But you might say, Scott, I I get why this question is important to you. You're a pastor. It's Easter, duh. But but why does this question question matter for everybody else? Why is it so significant? Well, I think that, that this question is significant and it matters because we are experiencing a crisis in our souls. Our country is is having a crisis, not of faith, but an existential crisis. Just a couple years ago, a study was done that revealed that the leading cause of death in the United States now for those under the age of 45 is poisoning or overdose. Higher than suicide, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Overdose is a, a death of hopelessness and peacelessness. And it isn't just people under the age of 45. Our next generation is being ravaged by this. From 2010 to 2020, we saw an increase of 45% for teenage boys and almost 200% for teenage girls being admitted to the hospital for non-fatal self-harm. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not a sociologist. But I can remember sociology class from college and a 188% increase in anything over 10 years is statistically staggering. Why are so many feeling this hopeless? And it isn't just people in their teens or people under 45. I know the demographic of Prescott. There's lots of you who are older than that. And for many of you who are parents and have kids, this is where you live. 68% of parents today think that their kids will be worse off financially when they become adults. For the first generation ever, we have parents who expect their kids to suffer more than they did or struggle more than they did or have it worse than they would. As a nation, we are searching for hope and peace and healing. And technology was supposed to give it to us. 
Science is supposed to give it to us. Advancement is supposed to give it to us. Medicine is supposed to give it to us. And all of those, as we gain more and more of those, we find ourselves desperate even more for hope and peace and healing. And part of that is because life is hard. There are people in this room today, or who will be here for the next service, who are are battling stage four cancer. There are people in this room who are praying that their marriage will hang on. People who are wondering how they're going to make retirement work because they've seen the reports from their accountant and they've seen the stock market and they're trying to make ends meet. People who are in therapy trying to overcome the trauma that was done to them and they're wondering if they'll ever get beyond the hurt and the pain. Life is short. I don't know a lot of things for sure. But one thing I can absolutely bank on is that you and I, eventually, we're going to die. And that time comes a lot faster for us than we realize. And as we go through that life that is short and hard, if there is no meaning in it, life becomes tremendously futile. That was Sarah's question. She had all the answers about how the universe worked, about how the stars worked, about how science worked. But she realized that she didn't know why. That science couldn't touch that. And so part of the reason that I believe this question, is the resurrection real, is so important. Because when you put your faith and trust that the resurrection is real, you have reason to celebrate in Jesus in a way that doesn't get celebrated anywhere else. There are lots of other religions in the world. Big ones like Hinduism and Islam. And the thing that sets Christianity apart and the reason that so many people are here today celebrating is that we celebrate today because Jesus came for us so that we don't have to work our way to him. In every other faith, it's about us getting ourselves to God, getting ourselves good enough for God, earning our way to God. And the revolutionary teaching of of Christianity is that Jesus came for us, so that we don't have to work our way to him. And not only did he come for us, but he gave everything for us. Early in the development of Christianity, by about 20 years after Jesus had died, there's a statement recorded in scripture by that man earlier, I mentioned his name, Saul. He later went on to become known as Paul. And he summarized the early understanding of of Christians about Jesus and his teaching. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So he's indicating somebody passed this on to me. I'm now believing in it and I pass it on to you. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, who's also known as Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his half-brother, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. That's why Saul, later known as Paul, believed. And that's what the early believers believed that over 2,000 years has been passed down to us. 
But I don't want to just talk about why this matters to Paul or why it should matter to you. I want to talk about why resurrection matters to me. Every year, this weekend has special meaning for me. Not just because it's Easter and there's extra attendance. It's extra significant because of what happened nine years ago. My wife and I were expecting more children. We already had a son, and she was pregnant with twins. And on the Thursday before Easter, we went in for what we thought was going to be a routine ultrasound. Sometimes I, I like to think that I can read people really well. It can be a gift, but it can also be a curse. And as we were having the ultrasound, I was sitting next to my wife, and I was getting bad vibes from the tech. Something was wrong. And so she left the room and then ushered us into a conference room with our doctor on a video screen. And he said, you need to go to the hospital right now because tomorrow you're going to have a surgery that if you don't have, your twins will die in the next two weeks. So we rushed to the hospital and for the next 24 hours, my wife fasted. She waited for this surgery, uncertain if her body was able to sustain this pregnancy. And so as I was sitting in a waiting room at Banner University Hospital in Phoenix, watching a Good Friday service, reflecting on the death of Jesus, I was reflecting on, was I going to be mourning the death of my children? The doctor came out right as the service ended, and he told me it's good news. And I said, yes. And he said, don't get too excited yet. He said, the next 48 hours are going to be critical. If you can make it through the next 48 hours with the pregnancy still intact, you'll have a 75% chance of having these babies. And so while we went through that weekend, remembering the darkness and the quietness and the uncertainty, the disciples felt as they waited for the resurrection, we did the same thing, but it was for our two children. And on Easter Sunday afternoon, they came and said, you can go home. And we knew what that meant. We knew that we were out of that set of darkness and there was a greater likelihood than not that our kids would be born. They'll celebrate their ninth birthday in August. So every year when I get up on Easter, I remember my little resurrection babies. Because they were for me the living embodiment of what this weekend is about. That out of the darkness and the despair of searching for hope, searching for peace, searching for healing... That if the resurrection is real, all of those are possible and available in Jesus. Now that's a really emotional thing for me. And I believe that the resurrection is an emotional thing. But stating that the resurrection is real is primarily reason-based. It's not emotionally driven. I'm not here today to try to convince you emotionally of something. I want you to understand that that the answer to the question, is the resurrection real, is based in in intelligent, reason-based, historical fact. See, that's what Lee discovered, that guy who was mad that his wife came home and became a Christian. He went out and studied, and he interviewed every expert he could to try to disprove what his wife had found. Now, I will tell you, having been married almost 15 years, if you win a fight with your wife, you lose. So just on a basic marriage level, Lee's logic was off. But I get what he was trying to do because he was hoping that he could disprove the resurrection and not have to change. 
But eventually, Lee found that it actually took more faith for him not to believe in the resurrection than it did for him to believe in it. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that the resurrection was real. And he ended up putting his his, uh, research together in a book called The Case for Christ that came out about 25 years ago. And once Lee came to the place where he embraced that the resurrection was real, Lee had to face his sin and his need for a savior. Because once somebody predicts their death, dies, and then comes back from the dead like they said they were going to, you have to take seriously everything else they say. Like if you come up to me in the lobby today while you're holding on to your coffee and your donut holes, and you say, Scott, I'm going to die on Thursday and then come back to life on Saturday, and you do, then I am going to go on your Facebook and your blog and your Twitter and your Instagram. I'm going to find everything you say because I can trust you. And the same thing is true for Jesus. That if he can predict his death and then deliver, then we need to go back and examine everything else he says. And Lee realized that once he'd been convinced the resurrection was real, he had to face the fact that he was a sinner and he was in need of a savior. I had the privilege of spending a day with Lee in 2011. And I got to hear his story and ultimately I became friends with his son. And that night when we were hanging out, we did an event together and I interviewed Lee. Lee shared with me the four E's for the evidence of the resurrection. So if you have your handout, I've given you blanks today if you want to fill these out. And and I'd encourage you, if you're not a believer, I'd encourage you to examine this evidence to say, is the resurrection real? And if you are a believer, I'd encourage you that this is the reason why you can have confidence that the resurrection is real. And I've made this easy. They're all starting with the same letter, the letter E. The first E for the evidence of the resurrection is the word execution. Execution. Lee said, the the first reason why we can be confident that Jesus really did resurrect was the execution. It's just a basic logical fact that to have a resurrection, you have to have a death first. It's just kind of, I mean, basic, you know? No one can come back from the dead unless they've actually died. And, and what Lee said was, he said, when I went and started doing my research, I was staggered that no one debated this. He said, even people who are skeptics, cynics, atheists, and agnostics, every skeptic admitted that there were no credible historians that disputed that Jesus was a real historical figure who was killed at the hands of the Romans. Everybody agrees on that. Because the Romans had perfected what the Persians had started. The Persians created crucifixion, and the Romans perfected it. And so for you to believe that Jesus wasn't actually dead would mean that the best empire ever at killing those they wanted to suppress somehow failed in that job. A few years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association, not a Christian publication, studied the evidence for the execution of Jesus, and they determined that Jesus actually was dead. Even atheist scholars, Marcus Berg, Bart Ehrman, all of them agree Jesus was dead. So everybody's on the same page with number one, that he really was executed. But then there's number two, and that's the early accounts. So you have an actually executed Jesus, but then you have really early accounts that speak to the belief that he'd resurrected. That creed we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, according to scholar James Dunn, it was recorded within 20 to 25 years 
of the events described, and it was formulated within months of the events. Now, I know to us in our modern world, because we all have these, that seems pretty slow. I mean, 20 to 25 years, that's late 90s, Scott. You know, that's a long time ago. But in the ancient world, that is really, really fast. In fact, we have earlier copies of the Gospels and letters like 1 Corinthians than most of the ancient literature that we treat as solidly historical. Like, I want you to go back a little bit in your minds to high school. Any of you read the Iliad by Homer in high school? You know, Iliad and the Odyssey, that whole story, okay? The Iliad, we only have a few hundred copies of that. And the earliest was 800 years after it was written. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have 5,500 complete copies of the Greek New Testament. The earliest was within 100 years after it was written. So if you take the Iliad and the Odyssey as historical, then there is way more historical credence to early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. Then number three, another E, you have the empty tomb. And in the same way that everyone agrees that execution happened, no one actually argues that the tomb wasn't empty. From the very early days until now, no one argues that somehow they went to the wrong tomb or the tomb was filled. Everyone agrees that there was an empty tomb on Sunday morning after he was crucified on Friday. Where the disagreement emerges is why was it empty? And some people would say, as the leaders did then, the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, that the disciples stole the body. But the fact that the tomb was empty was not what anyone expected because they expected that a dead body would stay in a tomb like it did for everybody else. And so Lee says the fact that the tomb is empty gives all the more credence to the fact that Jesus resurrected. And then there's the eyewitnesses. That's the fourth E, the eyewitnesses. Like with any event, you look for people who were there who can testify that it actually happened. Now, one of the theories that's out there, in addition to that Jesus wasn't really dead, is that all of the people who were involved in this got together, like a bunch of criminals would, before they were interviewed by police, and they aligned their stories so that they would be on the same page, and they would say, this resurrection thing happened. But if you were doing that, and that's what you tried to do, was to concoct the story, you would not do a story like this. If you were concocting the story, you wouldn't cast women like this. Because if you know the story from Scripture, you know the very first people to discover the empty tomb were women. Now, this is not 21st century America, where women can vote, be CEOs, be vice president of the country. In this world, women could not vote, women could not own land, and women's testimony in court only got accepted if a man was there to corroborate it. This was patriarchal culture. So you wouldn't make the women the trustworthy eyewitnesses if you were concocting the story and trying to make it believable. You also wouldn't have the leaders of this movement of Jesus' followers looking shocked. Like if you were writing a story where you were basing it, would you make yourself look better or worse? Like when you know your spouse is coming home from a long trip, do you make all of a giant pile of dishes in the sink? Or do you run the dishwasher like it's on overdrive? 
If you know a project is due, do you wait till your boss gets back to start, or do you make sure that it's done so that you look good? No, you make sure you look good. That's a natural human experience. So you wouldn't have these leaders writing off the women when they came back with good news. I mean, the leaders of this movement, Peter, James, John, they look like buffoons. Peter denies Jesus three times. John runs away, scared. And all of them are hiding, and they don't believe the women when they show up. And yet this is what that that creed that's been repeated for 2,000 years tells us. That Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Some people believe that that this whole thing for the resurrection was a group hallucination. And, and, And sometimes there are people who have psychotic episodes and they see things or maybe they're on some sort of psychedelic or drug and they have some sort of vision. But there is no historical or scientific evidence that there has ever been a hallucination with 500 people who all saw the same thing that wasn't real. In fact, it actually takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe that they saw what they saw, much less that many of those 500 people would die rather than deny what they saw. So let me just be really clear today. It's my job here today to share the evidence with you, and it's your job to determine the verdict. I can't decide for you the way you're going to answer the question, is the resurrection real? But if you say, Scott, I appreciate your nice little ease. I'll write those down and take those home, but I still don't believe. Can I push you a little bit? If you reject the evidence, is it that you don't believe or is it that you won't believe? Is it that you don't believe because you don't believe the evidence is convincing and you've actually studied it? Or is it that you won't believe because you don't want to deal with the consequences? Is it that you're scared of what embracing the resurrection as real might mean for the rest of your life? Because that's what happened to these three people, to Lee, to Dr. Sarah Salviander, and to Nabil Qureshi. For Nabil, he lost his entire family when four years later he became convinced that the Bible was real, that Jesus really did die, that he really did come back to life, and that he really did need to be saved through him. Nabil lost his whole family. Sarah is an astrophysicist at the University of Texas, Austin. Not exactly the most friendly profession for people who follow Jesus. And yet she embraced it. Lee ultimately changed his entire career from a legal journalist to somebody who shared about the resurrection as a historical fact. And all of them experienced their lives radically changing. And that's why I believe some people don't ever ask themselves the hard questions. Not because they don't believe, but because they won't, because they don't want to have to accept what might have to change if they change their mind about death. See, that's what Jesus' message does. It doesn't just come in and change what you do on Sunday mornings between 9 and 10 a.m. It doesn't just change what you believe about life after you die. No, what Jesus does is he comes in and he wants to radically change everything about you. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that means if you begin to explore his teachings and put your faith in the resurrection and open yourself to him, then he is like that annoying house guest 
who's going to find his way into every closet in your house. I just want to give you a heads up. I want to be honest about what's coming. He's not, gonna, he's not just going to stay in the living room. He's going to find that closet where you stuffed all the dirty laundry. He's going to find that place where you put all those boxes you've never unpacked, though you've lived in Prescott for eight years. He's going to find those things from your childhood and your past that you've never really dealt with. He's going to come in and touch everything. But that isn't bad news. It's good news. Because in all of those places, he's working to bring hope and peace and healing for this life and for eternity. So if you're looking to explore the teachings of Jesus and why the resurrection is real, then I'd encourage you today, before you go to sleep, to visit prescottcornerstone.com Easter to learn more about Lee and Sarah and Nabil's story. Because I think for many of you, you're experiencing what Sarah did. She said this. She said, I love my career as an astrophysicist, and I can't think of anything I would rather do than study the workings of the universe And I realize now that my lifelong fascination with space has really been an intense longing for a connection with God. So my question for you is this. What have you been searching for? What has your heart been longing for? And is it possible that you've been searching for the right thing, but you've been searching in the wrong place? You've been looking for things to bring you hope and peace and healing but you haven't found those things. And I would encourage you, don't give up on them. Just start looking for them in a place that can actually deliver. We end every message at Cornerstone with next steps. And these are on the back of your handout if you're new. And I've got three for you today, one for each of you based upon the group you're in. First, if you're not a believer in the resurrection, then I'd encourage you to do your homework and determine what you're going to do with the resurrection. Not to take my word for it or what I've shared with you today, but go and do your own homework. It's a challenge because I believe if you go and do your work, what you'll discover is there's actually historical, reasonable, evidence-based facts that give credence to this belief that followers of Jesus have had for 2,000 years that the resurrection is real. I believe that you'll experience what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 13. That you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. If you say, hey, I want to know the truth, and you give yourself to that pursuit, I believe that God will intersect your path, and you will discover the truth. Again, we put together a whole list of resources for you at the top of the page, Prescott Cornerstone Easter, where we promoted today, where you can get more resources on that. But if you're ready to explore Jesus on his own terms and read his own words like Nabil did with his friend David, I'd encourage you to open your Bible this week to the book of John. John was written by one of the closest friends of Jesus. It's 21 chapters. So if you started reading today and you read three chapters today and the next day and the next day, you'd be finished by Saturday. If you start tomorrow, you'd be finished by Sunday. Each day take you less than half of the favorite show you're binging on Netflix right now. So it's not a big time commitment. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible today in the lobby for you to take home and begin reading. Because I believe that you will experience what Lee and Sarah and Nabil and me and your neighbor have here. That Jesus is unlike anybody else in history. And he really did rise from the dead and he really does want to transform your life. Number two, if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to challenge you to live your faith boldly. What I have done in studying the 
research and the evidence for the resurrection has only made me more confident. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that you have a reasonable, evidence-based, historically grounded faith, that you're not just trusting God in blind faith, that there's a foundation for you to stand on. And so as you share your faith with people, I want to encourage you to be patient and be persistent. Nabil's friend David spent four years in college with him at Old Dominion. Breakfasts and smoothie runs, late night coffees and study sessions, arguments back and forth. Nabil didn't come to faith overnight, but David patiently and persistently and boldly shared the reason why he believed. And ultimately, when Nabil did his homework and then began to pray and ask God to show him the truth, he found what he was looking for. So if you're a follower of Jesus, don't be shy. Be bold. But if God has been stirring in your heart today or in recent days and you're realizing that you need to put your faith in the resurrection, then you're number three. I'd invite you to embrace new life today. That man Saul experienced a radical change. And he said in his other letter to the church in Corinth, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. It wasn't that he suddenly became a better person who had less of a temper and was more kind to people and was more patient. It was that he became a completely new person from old to new, from death to life. And how do you do that? Well, here's what he said later. He said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe him in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Becoming a new person can be as clear as this. Admitting your sin. Admitting that you are a broken, sinful person and you cannot save yourself. Believing in the resurrection that if Jesus can come back from the dead, he can transform your life too. And then confessing that he's Lord. That you're not in charge of your life, but you're turning it over to him. That you're no longer going to be the leader, but you're going to follow his leadership. For 2,000 years, people across the world of every language and every ethnicity and every education level and every economic level have realized these three things. They've taken these steps and they've experienced the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, raising them from the dead too. And that's available for you today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came for us, that you died for us, that you rose from the dead for us, that we can have confidence in this life and the next because you have defeated our sin, our shame, our past, and death itself. We thank you that we don't just need to have an experience with you and an encounter with you and our emotions stirred with you, but we can have our mind stirred as well that we can study this like we study anything else and find the truth that you really didn't stay in that tomb, but you came out. And because you came out, the best news is available that you're alive. And so we celebrate that today. If you're here today and you're asking the question, is, is this the time? I would tell you life is short, why wait? 
If you're ready to put your faith and trust in Jesus, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that before we go today. So if you're at home, there's a little button that's going to pop up on your video that'll give you a chance to make a click and share about what God's doing in your life. If you're here in the room, then I just encourage you to just raise your hand. Say, hey, I'm ready to put my faith and trust in the resurrection. I believe the resurrection is real. Thank you. And I'd encourage you just to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to come in and not just help me, but change me. I need you to forgive my past. And I need you to take control. I believe that you came and died on the cross for me. That you rose from the dead. I believe you are who you say you are, the perfect son of God. So today I confess that you are my Lord and Savior and I turn my life over to you. I don't know how to follow you yet. I don't understand a lot yet. But I know that you're real and that you're resurrected. And if you'll take my life, I'll give it to you. I want to be a new creation. Help me to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.